Last week we looked at Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. This time we're going to pick up from 4. We're not going to make it all the way over to 10, but we're going to be looking at some other scriptures, some other passages in here as, as well. In particular, we're going to look at what happened when Jesus ascended on high. Paul quotes a verse from Psalms 68. And in bringing this in, he ties in two other events into the ascension of Jesus. So we're going to take a look at what those two events are. The verse tells us that he led captivity captive. We're going to see what exactly that means. What did Jesus lead captive? So with that, let's reread Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Thy therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity. What's that? Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought I was reading the wrong one. I'm, oh, it's, it's, I'm just reading over in the just a review. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And here are the, the four characteristics that we needed to focus on with all lowliness. Lowliness was one. Gentleness, that was the second. Long-suffering and bearing with one another in love. We saw that these four characteristics of all the things he could have pulled out, these are the ones that he pulled out. And if we can focus on those, we will see our life greatly mature, our spiritual walk greatly mature. Now verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So there's a lot of ones here. The one body is, of course, the body of Christ. That is the one body that we are called into. The one spirit is the one spirit of, of Jesus. I'm sorry, the spirit of God. In 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. So here he's talking about one spirit. Again, we were baptized all into one body. It didn't matter what our nationality was. It didn't matter how we were born. It didn't matter whether we were born free or born slaves. All have been made to drink of one spirit. So a lot of ones, even in that verse. The one spirit is, of course, the Holy Spirit, the one hope. No matter where we are in the body, we still have the one hope of what we're looking for in the, in the future. And this is the hope of the church. This is where we're going. We are the bride of Christ. We have heaven to look forward to. We have the kingdom that comes after. We have one Lord. That is Jesus Christ. We have one faith. Not one target of our faith, but Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It goes on, not of works, lest any man should boast. But we are, we are saved through faith. There's that one faith. We, there may be different types of faith that we have to receive things, but we all have the one faith that gets us born again. One baptism 
This is not water baptism. This is the baptism into Him. And again in 1 Corinthians 12.13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, we were all baptized into one body. We were all placed into one body. Is what he is speaking about here. One God. We are not like other religions that have many gods. We have one God. That one God is above all. And it is, as he says, it is... Let me just uh, read that part again. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So that one God and Father, He is above all, He is through all, and He is in you all. So there's a lot of ones that are going on with this that he is, he is emphasizing here. We are not like other religions. We have one God. Many of the other religions have multiple gods. Satan has no problem getting multiple gods in. He doesn't care what it takes to distract people from the one God. So he will get a multiple number of gods to get people's focus on the multiple number of gods. Whether those gods would be a god of self, whether those gods would be a god of, of sin, of pleasure, Whatever it might be, whatever God is going to appeal to you, He is going to create a God for it and get you to be distracted by it so that you do not go after the one God. But again, this is a a big difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of, of Satan. I think I put this in your outline further down here, but the kingdom of darkness strives for unity through sameness. God achieves unity but with diversity. There are diversities of gifts. There's diversities of places in the body. There's diversities of different parts of the body. But there's one God. But the body has many parts. You flip over to the kingdom of darkness. He wants all those parts doing the same thing. And you can worship whatever gods that you want. He's just mixed it all up. If you, I think I mentioned this to you before, but if you really want to see the kingdom of darkness, anything that puts pressure on everything to be the same will be the kingdom of darkness. God invites diversity. He loves diversity. You just look at all the things that are going on in this world, how many billions of people are in this world, and everyone looks different. Everyone sounds different. Everyone acts different. Children, you can have a family of 10 kids, and they'll all act different. They got the same parents, but they're going to be different from each other. God is a master of diversity. And he's not afraid of it, nor should we be. But the devil likes sameness. This is why he gets people to be to to give in to the pressure. I only want people that believe like I do. I only want people that look like I do. I only want people that do this like I do. We want sameness in that kingdom. But in the kingdom of God, we love diversity. Jesus loved diversity. Look at his disciples. Look at how diverse they were in the different types. You got fishermen, you got tax collectors, you got all sorts of people. He didn't care where they came from. He didn't care about that diversity. They all, I don't need just all lawyers. I don't need whatever it might be. He, he didn't need sameness. He needed different ones. And God looks at us, there's different ones. But he, he brings them all together. And his influence is to bring unity without sameness. 
The devil can't achieve unity without sameness. He's got to get everybody the same. He wants you to dress alike. You look at those communist countries, they, all, they try and put pressure on, they all dress the same. They all put pressure on, they all have the same stuff. We all want you to have the same cubicle to live in. We all want you to have the same, same kind of housing. Uh, we can't have diversity of housing. You all have to have the same, same kind. Everything needs to be the same. And if it's not the same, then you need to become envious of what they have and we need to bring them down. But that's not God. God even, Jesus in his stories, this one has ten talents, this one has two talents, this one has one talent. He didn't care. He, they're given about on, the, on their ability, but we can still have unity even though there's, there's differences in these, these abilities. Never focus on, on those things to cause division. That's what the devil wants to do. He wants to get, get us divided over these things. So there's all the different ministries that we stand in. There's uh, the manifestations of the ministries, which are all manifestations of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus has a ministry. And he takes all the ministry that he has and he puts this part into this one. And he puts this part into this one. And he puts this part into this one. And as we all come together, we make the body of Christ. Now the devil doesn't like that. So he tries, he's going to try and make everybody be an arm. Arms are the best. Everybody needs to want to be an arm. So everybody wants to become an arm. And then nobody wants to become whatever else that they are in, in there. But Paul talks about in his letters, not just this one, but in his letters, the different parts of the body, the different offices of the body, the different ministries that are in the body, and that each one is important. And each one has a, has a place. The offices are called graces. Because they are not something we choose, but what we are given. I don't choose this, but I'm given it. God says, I'm going to give you this one. It's a grace gift. I didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it. God says, this is what I want you to have. This is the part I need you to play in the body. And I take that gift, and I say, thank you. <laughs> and I go on. But see, the devil wants to stir us up. Well, how come I got this gift, and I didn't get that one? I like that one better. No, we just take the gift that we have that God gave us and we do the best that we can with it. The, uh, read that again. Verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, there's the same kind of grace that is given for salvation, but after we got born again, there's a different amount of, of grace that is given for the thing that you have. The person who has, uh, like, like Paul, the calling that he has, well, more grace is given to him because of the responsibilities that come with that calling. He's going to need it. Different people are going to, are going to need different amount of, of graces for that. So that particular grace is a little bit different. But all the offices are called graces. All the ministries are called graces. The kingdom of darkness, as we said, strives for unity through sameness. God does not need sameness to achieve unity. If we yield to his spirit, he achieves unity with diversity and its members thereby becoming strong. The diversity of the body of Christ it w is what causes us to be strong. It's what causes us to be able to overcome. Because as I go through with the grace gifts that I have and I read something and I can't get past it, that's okay. We got so-and-so. We got sister so-and-so, brother so-and-so. They have this grace gift. They have this gift over here. Let's get them involved. Let's bring them on in. And we can just stand on back. I don't need to do it all. 
No, this one right here, they have the grace gift to step up there and to do that. And so they step up and they, and they do that. Paul would talk about this. He would talk about the different roles that different people had. Uh, Apollos watered. He talked about the different ministries. Of different, some, some people plant the seeds. Some people water the seeds. Some people go out there and they harvest the seed. No matter. We're all in the same thing. We're all coming for the same goal. Stay in unity. Now, darkness has diversity of gods in order to get people's focus off Jehovah, but sameness of function. That's what he's trying to get to. Now, here in verse 8, I spent most of the day yesterday working on these verses because um, I was seeing something a little different than I've taught it before. Most times I've, I've gone over there, I went back and I listened to one. I says, yeah, that's how I did teach it before. That he led captivity captive. They were looking at the people that were in the area of paradise as being captive, and he led them out. But I'm looking at this a little bit, a uh, little bit differently. I'm not quite sure that's the translation. That's what has gone on here. So we'll spend some time here with it. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and gave gifts to men. So there's three questions we need to answer out of this verse. First off, when he ascended on high, what ascension are we speaking of? Because he ascended on the first day that he was raised. Remember he told Mary, don't touch me. I have not yet ascended to my father. There's an ascension on that first day. There's an ascension on the last day. When he was taken up with the disciples, they saw him ascend up. That's the second ascension. Which one is he talking about? He led captivity captive. What exactly was led captive? And gave gifts to men. And we're going to see in these verses that this is a quote from Psalms except for one word. One word is very deliberately changed. We want to see why that word is changed. <clears throat> now in order to do that, what we need to take on first is what happens in the middle. When he says he led captivity captive. Because if I don't understand what's being taken captive, I'm going to have a hard time understanding what ascension we're talking about. So I've got to first off figure out what is being taken captive. So he led captivity captive. Now this comes from two different Greek words, but the Greek words come from the same root. They're just different forms of that particular word. So he led captivity captive. The word captivity here can mean captivity or prisoner. This is what these words are. It's not used in the New Testament very much at all. I believe three times. Two other times in the book of Revelation. That's where you're going to see this. He led captivity captive. So, it could either be the concept of captivity or those taken as prisoners in a battle. Those are the two ways that you can go with this. This is what it's talking about. Prisoners in a battle or the concept of of captivity. If he took the concept of captivity captive, are people still held captive today? Are there still people held captive by their sins? Are there still people held captive by worry, fear, anxiety? Are people not still held in cap captivity by different things that they have yielded to? If he took captivity captive, Shouldn't it be that it's not an issue anymore? 
But it is an issue, so I don't think that what he took captive was the concept of captivity. Now, I told you, by using Psalm 68, he's bringing two other events into this. And so we want to take a look at what those, those are. And in order to do that, we have to go back to Psalm 68. It is a long psalm. I am not trying to teach the psalm. Just trying to get the, the, what, this, um, what this verse that he brings out of this means. So, this psalm is written after Jerusalem is conquered. And it is considered safe to bring the ark into it. And so they are leading the ark in a procession from where it was to where it will be in the city of Jerusalem. David has already gone in the battle. He has already conquered the city of Jerusalem. And the city of Jerusalem is considered safe for the ark to come into. In verse 1, To the chief musician, the psalm of David, a song, Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let those also who hate him flee before him. Now, what is interesting about this verse and him starting this off is that David is directly bringing in an event from the Old Testament. It is unmistakable what David is doing. David is quoting Moses in in Numbers chapter 10. He is quoting Moses and um, towards the end of chapter 10, I forget the the verse, um, 25, 35, something like that. This is so well known by the children of Israel, is what I'm told by the the people who do the history here. This is so well known that if you heard somebody get up and begin to to recite the word four score and seven years ago, what would you think of? You would immediately think of Abraham's Gettysburg Address. And there's other people that uh, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King I have a dream. Can you say those words without thinking of the rest of the speech that he gave? I, I, you hear that, you, you immediately think the rest of the speech that he gave. We may not have all the rest of the speech memorized as much, but those words we have down. It's the same thing here. When David starts out, their, their thinking immediately goes back to Moses and what he said about God. And what occurred with these words that Moses spoke in Numbers is that these words were spoken every time the ark was taken out. Every time that they began to move in the wilderness, go from one place to another, these words that Moses spoke in Numbers chapter 10 were uttered. And now David is starting this psalm off with this wording. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let those who hate him flee before him. So now we have two events that are now brought in, tied in with what Paul is teaching. By Paul bringing this in, he's also bringing in the two events because he is focusing on the one verse that talks about prisoners, that talks about captivity. And that's the one that he has brought out. In the first one with Moses, they were going from the place of the wilderness to a particular destination, weren't they? The destination was the promised land. Along the course of that, did they have people who desired to stop them? Did they have battles in the wilderness? No, they sure did. And they had victory over those battles. And they, they killed some of them. They took prisoners. They uh, took spoil. All these things had occurred throughout all that in taking the ark 
from where it was. Once they built it, once God gave them the directions on what to build in Sinai, they built and that ark went with them and it took it to a particular place. Now David is writing a psalm or taking this, the ark from where it was to where it's going to be housed in the city of Jerusalem. And this is a particular place that God has picked, which is brought out in this, in this psalm. Let's read, the, um, let's read the rest of this here. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish in the presence of God. Wax, when it's not before the fire, can get hard. But you light the candle. You bring it towards a, a fire. And the heat from the fire will begin to soften the, the wax. And uh, you get it close enough to it, it will liquefy it. And this is what he's saying here. Smoke is driven away, so drive them away. Or I'm sorry, as smoke is driven away, so drive them away, the enemy. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. So the wicked is hard, the wicked seems to be firmly planted where they are, but let the presence of God come near and begin to melt them down. As smoke is driven away, let the presence of God come in and drive away that smoke. That's what he's saying there. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds by his name, Yah. And rejoice before him. This is not used very often in the Bible, Yah, but you'll see a form of it in Hallelujah. Hallelujah takes this this name and puts that in in there. You can see that, of course, at the end. Most of the time, the the second half of the word is put in there, but once in a while, you will see this just with the first half, Yah, by his name Yah, and rejoice before him. So it says here, who rides on the clouds. By bringing this in, who rides on the crowds of this, uh, David here, is contrasting the all-sufficiency of the God of Israel with the powers of Baal, whom the Canaanites worshipped, because they saw them as riding on the rivers on the clouds. That's what they saw their gods as doing. And so when he's using this, who rides on the clouds, he's saying the gods of the Canaanites, the Baals, they ride on the clouds. Our God rides on the clouds better than they do and has conquered them. We have come in. We have conquered Jerusalem. We have taken this from the Canaanites. Their gods are no match for our God. Our God is the God who rides on the clouds. So he's contrasting those things there. Again, we're depicting the battle. A father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, God in his holy habitation. God sets the solid, solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound in the prosperity, but the rebellious... Dwell in a dry land. Oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth shook. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You, O oh God, sent a plentiful rain, whereby you confirmed your inheritance when it was weary. Your congregation dwelt in it. You, O oh God, provided from your goodness for the poor. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those who proclaimed it. Kings of armies flee. They flee, and she who remains at home divides the spoil. Though you lie down among the sheepfolds, you will be like the wings of a dove covered with silver and her feathers with yellow gold. 
When the Almighty scatters kings in it, it was white as snow in Salmon. Now, Salmon, sometimes spelled with a Z, New King James spells it with an S. Salmon is another name for Mount Ebal, which is in central Israel. It, many people consider it more of a high hill than a mountain, but this is what it's called here. The rest of this line, uh, we can't really get an exact determination of it. What it's talking about here is white as snow in, in uh, Salmon or Mount Ebal. But again, we're not trying to break down all the different things that are in this parable, uh, this uh, psalm. A mountain of God, is the, verse 15, is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you fume with envy, you mountains of many peaks? This is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. Now, if that seems strange, what is he talking about here? He is taking one of the more majestic mountains in the land of Israel. He said, this truly is a mountain of God. This has many peaks. It is high. It is large. And then he calls out to the mountain and says, why are you envious that God has not chosen you? And God has chosen an inferior mountain in Mount Zion. A smaller mountain. A mountain that doesn't stand as tall. A mountain that doesn't have the many peaks that you have. Why do you fume with envy, you mountains of many peaks? This is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. This is Zion. This is Mount Zion. And yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. So Bashan was a little further north in Israel. In the region, uh, in the region of what today is called Golan, or I'm sorry, Golan Heights. <clears throat> As we said, it's an impressive mountain. And he's actually calling out to it and saying, you're, you're fuming with envy. Now, I don't know if the mountain itself was fuming with envy, but he's, he's trying to, to show God did not pick what looks to be a majestic mountain, a mountain that God, that is worthy of God. He picked this lower one over here. Because God does not always pick the most majestic things to show His wisdom through. He sometimes picks the foolish things of this world to show His wisdom through. And He picked this lower mountain that is part of Jerusalem. This is where He's going to be. Uh, Verse 17, The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. And I am told that this phraseology is is not trying to number them. He's not trying to say God has 20,000 chariots. He's trying to say that God has an innumerable host of chariots. That is their, uh, their terminology for that. So I will take their word for that. <clears throat> the Lord is among them, as in Sinai in the holy place. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. Blessed be the Lord, who daily loads us with benefits the God of our salvation. Our God is the God of salvation, and to God, the Lord belongs escapes. I'm, I'm, to God, the Lord, belong escapes from death. So he says here, verse 18 again, You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive, and you have received gifts to men. So this comes, this verse that is pulled out by Paul and put into this, uh, this letter, this is the verse that talks about a military conquest. The, it brings in the military conquest of Moses in the wilderness, leading the children of Israel to the promised land. 
not in the promised land, leading them to it, the stuff that was going on in the wilderness. It leads the military conquest that David had that conquered Jerusalem, which is the mountain of God, which gave Israel control over Jerusalem, which is a city that God had said uh, way back it was going to be his. That's where he had chosen. And David took the Ark of the Covenant to that place. So each time that this has been used in those previous two things, we're looking at a journey from one place to another that had enemies that wished to stop the journey and not have you fulfill the purpose of the journey and where you were going. And they came with force, and force was met, and prisoners were taken, people were killed. This is what he's, he's talking about. In looking at that, looking at the first two, it would seem very doubtful that this captivity has anything to do with the concept of captivity, and that it is talking about prisoners. If he took prisoners, and they actually turn, uh, call that word or translate that word prisoners, if he took prisoners captive, is that the kind of phraseology that we would use to discuss taking people out of Abraham's bosom into heaven? I can't see it. I cannot see using a description of taking prisoners to a place of captivity. So what is it that has occurred here? What is it that has gone on? Uh, where do we leave off at? Verse... We got a little bit further now. Do we get up to 20? Our God is the God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. But God will wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of the one who still goes on his trespasses. The Lord said, I will bring back from Bashan, I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that your foot may crush them in blood, and the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from your enemies. We're still talking about conquering here. They have seen your possession, O God, the possession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers went before the players on instruments, followed after among them were the maidens playing timbrels. It talks about the women here because in David's day, the men went out to war and the women stayed home. You can argue whether they should. This is how they did it. They didn't send their women out to battle. They sent the men out to battle and so the women would greet them when they would come home. So when he writes this, this is why he's writing it this way because the men went out to battle when they came home, their wives, their sisters, their mothers, whoever else was in the family was there to greet them. There is little Benjamin, their leader, the princes of Judah, and their companies, the princes of Zebulun and the princes of Nephtali. When he talks about Benjamin here, David had apparently bestowed upon Benjamin the honor of being the one to lead the ark into the city of Jerusalem. They are mentioned first, they were at the lead, which is really interesting since Saul came from this tribe and that would be the rival, rival to his, his leadership. But he didn't care. <laughs> That's David. He knows that God put him in this in this place. So Benjamin, the princes of Judah, of course, that's his tribe. And for some reason, only two of the other ones are mentioned. It could be uh, a valid reason for that. It could just be he didn't want to make the list too long and he just uh, threw two of them in there to include the rest of them. I don't know. I would think, though, if you're going to do that, Ephraim would have been one of them. Some of the more prominent tribes, Zebulun and Nephtali, not real prominent. 
Your God has commanded your strength, strength, O God, what you have done for us because of your temple at Jerusalem. Kings will bring presents to you. Rebuke the beast of the reeds, the herd of bulls, with the calves of the people, till everyone submits himself with pieces of silver. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Every envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly, quickly stretch out our hands to God. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Oh, sing praises to the Lord. Selah. To him who rides on the, on the heaven of heavens, which were of old, indeed, he sends out his voice, a mighty voice. Ascribe strength to God. His excellence is over Israel, and his strength is in the clouds. O God, you are more awesome than your holy places. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. So, if this is depicting a battle, if it is depicting some kind of a uh, war that had gone on, and that there were prisoners, what ascension that Jesus did would have had this? So, we have two ascensions with Jesus. The first ascension, we don't have any, we don't even see it. All we know is that Jesus was on the earth. He said, don't touch me. I have not yet ascended to my father. And then when he shows up again later on, he obviously had ascended. The ministry that Jesus had to do is demonstrated in the uh, Old Testament, in the ministry at the temple. God put this in place with Moses. This was done during the the temple. What would happen is, especially during the the Feast of of, Jesus, that this particular um, sorry, the, uh, the offering of atonement that was made, they would take the, offer, the sacrifice out into the courtyard and on the brazen altar they would offer this up. They would then take the blood from the brazen altar and they would carry it through the court, through the, uh, into the, into the um, temple, through the holy place and into the holy of holies. That's where the high priest every year would take the blood from this, uh, this one sacrifice, the blood of that lamb, and he would sprinkle it on the altar. This had to be done once a year. This is the Passover. This is the Passover lamb. And these are the things that were, that were done there. Jesus, of course, is the Passover lamb. And so what he had to do to fulfill this ministry that is demonstrated in the ministry in the temple and by the priest and by particularly the high priest, which Jesus is our high priest, he had to take his blood that was offered as the lamb of God and take it and present it to God. And where does he have to sprinkle it? On the altar. Because when Moses built the altar that is in the temple, we all know from looking at this before, he saw it. He saw it where? In heaven. The the altar, the temple, is in heaven. And what we have on earth was a replica of it. And so Jesus took his blood from down here on the earth, on the cross, took it up to heaven and sprinkled it on that altar before the Father. That's what he had to do. Now, Jesus came to this earth to live as a a sinful life. Did the enemy oppose him in that? Absolutely. He had to go to the cross. Did the enemy oppose him in going to the cross? Remember in the garden? Remember the battle that was going on in the garden? There was a, a temptation for Jesus to go a different way. Of course, in the temptations, he tried to give them an easy way out of it and not go to the cross. 
There was a battle to, to get to the cross. After he died, the enemy made every attempt he could to keep him in that tomb. We got Roman soldiers. We got seals. We got all sorts of stuff to keep him in the tomb. It didn't keep him in the tomb. And he was resurrected. If the enemy battled his life from being sinless, if the enemy battled his path to the cross, if his enemy battled the path to resurrection, why do you think the enemy would have stopped? So, what has to happen is, Jesus has to get here from the earth to heaven. In order to get from here to the earth, into heaven, what do you have to go through? The atmosphere? Or the place of principalities and powers? Because that's where they reside. So take a look at this. In Hebrews chapter 4, in verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Jesus is said to have passed through the heavens. Why in the world are you even making mention of that if he goes from the earth and zip right on up into heaven? But he passed through. It would seem to indicate that there may have been a battle between Jesus getting from the earth to getting to heaven because he was carrying the blood. He's carrying his blood. And the enemy does not want to see that happen. We've got to stop that from, from going on. So there may have been a battle in the area of the principalities and powers to keep Jesus from finishing it, which is why very likely that uh, it's even mentioned here in Hebrews. I'll tell you, I really want to find out who wrote Hebrews. Because they have some knowledge on some things that it just doesn't seem like anyone else in the New Testament who writes does. No one else talks about this. This passing through into the heaven. Now in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with circumcision made without hands by, the putting, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now look at this list here. Having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirement that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That would indicate that this aspect of the work of the cross was done at the cross and not in heaven. The handwriting requirements that was against us, which were contrary to us, that was taken out of the way by him nailing it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. How many times have you read that verse? Mm -hmm. When did he disarm principalities and powers? Now, did he disarm principalities and powers in that principalities and powers are no longer a problem for us? Anybody have problems with principalities and powers? He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now, we still have principalities and powers, don't we? 
Is Satan still not the God of this world? Does he not still have power to do things here on this earth? Does he not accomplish things through different people? So what principalities and powers did he disarm and make a public spectacle of? So let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. And he's going to go on here and talk about our, our way that we deal with people. Because a lot of times we let people judge us and we let them move us into do things. But he's, he's looking at it this way. Jesus Christ came and at the cross he nailed all those things that were put against you. All those accusations that were put against you, he nailed them on the cross. What he does in heaven with his blood has nothing to do with the devil. It is between us and God. And he's making sacrifice for God. He's paying the price before God. The devil's not involved in that. The devil cannot exact a price because God's not paying him. It would seem from this verse of Scripture here, as well as the one in Hebrews, that there was a battle that took place between Jesus leaving the earth and going into heaven to make that presentation of the blood. And the ones, the, the forces of angels, the uh, Fallen angels, not heavenly angels. The forces of heavenly angels that came, he did battle with. Now, I'm going to have you do this from memory because we've been reading a lot of scriptures here to you. When Jesus was called up in the final ascension and the disciples are down there on the Mount of Olives and he is called up, what is he called up into? He is called up into a cloud or basically he is called up into a Shekinah glory. As he is called up into a Shekinah glory, and that glory cloud lifts up into heaven, do you think principalities and powers are going to hinder him on that ascension? Shekinah glory is the presence of God. Not the presence of angels. The presence of God. He ascended. He, we don't have him ascending into a Shekinah glory cloud we're over there with Mary. We don't know how he ascended. As far as we know, he just kind of kind of went up. If we're looking at a battle, that battle is in that first ascension. That second ascension, he goes up in the Shekinah glory cloud, and I think that glory cloud just escorts him all the way over because the battle is over. Because whatever came against him, he defeated them, he took them as prisoner, and he took them captive. And he made a display of them. These are the ones who came after me. And I defeated them, and I have come with the purpose of bringing my blood and to sprinkle it here on the altar. Our high priest didn't just wander up into heaven. He had a battle because someone wanted to stop him. The enemy knew if we don't stop him from getting that blood on that altar, that penalty will be paid for and we will lose. He says, in light of all that, Look at what Jesus did at the cross. Look what Jesus did after the cross. Look what he did to principalities and powers that come against you. He took the handwriting of things that were spoken against you. He nailed it to the cross. He took principalities and powers that tried to stop him from doing the work that he was called to do to bring his blood as high priest into that altar. No one else can do it but him. Jesus is the only one. He had to be the one who brought it in. And so he makes that trip and the principalities and powers say, no, we're not going to let you get through there. And they try and do battle. And he defeats them. 
Can you imagine getting that assignment? The devil says, I need some people who are going <laughs> to... And then some of them, uh, I guess some of them said, I can do it. Ah, he's nothing. We can take him. <laughs> and uh, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over the minute. So he says, because of all this that, that your Savior has done, why are you going to let other people judge you in food? Why are you going to let other people judge you in drink? Why are you going to make them feel or make you feel like you're not doing something that you ought to be doing? When you know from the Word of God what you're doing is okay. These are all things, he says in verse 17, which are just a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. Let no one cheat you out of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints, ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do you understand what happened at the death of Jesus? Do you understand you don't live in that battle that he had done before? He already won that battle. Principalities and powers came after him to try and, and, and knock him off his game. He didn't get knocked off his game. He took captivity. He took prisoners captive. And then he made a show of them. He said, look, at these are the ones who came after me. I defeated them. Now here is the blood. Puts it on the, on the altar. Well, we can keep on going in there, but you get the idea. That's the context of what he is, he is uh, doing the rest of um, Colossians at. So he disarms them. There's the work of the cross. There was a battle to get to heaven. There was a sprinkling of the blood on the altar. Once he sprinkles that blood on the altar, his work is done. He has finished it. Oh, he, I know he said it is finished at the cross, but what he was to do at the cross was finished. There was still more. He had not made that presentation of the blood yet. He had not risen from the dead yet. That wasn't finished. He's not saying that everything was finished. He's saying what he had to do at the cross was finished. His body was made a, uh, uh, was beaten for us so that we would redeem from the curse and his blood was poured out. Somehow he collected that blood, and he took that blood and he put it on the altar. I heard someone uh, say that Jesus has no blood because he poured it all out on the altar. Uh, very, very much uh, could see that be the that be the way that it goes there. So the ascension is it the first day or the last day? I would say it's the first day because I don't see how he could be facing a battle, being caught up in a glory cloud on that, uh, that particular day. In uh, John 20 and verse 17, Jesus said to her, to Mary, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. I am ascending. He's not talking about a team here. He talks about I am ascending. So this is the one where the finished work is done. He is finishing off the work of the cross. He is delivering his blood onto that altar. Now here in the third area, you may have already picked up on it, but Paul changes the word received to give. 
Now, when you come back, when you go out to battle, when Moses went out in the battle, they received gifts. They were spoiled. When David went out to battle and took over Jerusalem, he received gifts. There's their spoil. And so when he's writing about it, he's talking about receiving gifts. But when Paul uses this, he changes the word. And just know, these people know, he changed it. He changed it. And he said that he gives gifts. Let me read that. Uh, pull that back up on verse, uh, verse 8. Instead of me just uh, flipping all the way back. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts, not received. Gave gifts to men. So, he took captivity captive. He's not taking spoils from the enemy and giving it to us. What does the enemy have that we would want? We got nothing. He's taking gifts of what he has. He is taking the gifts and ministries that are part of him, that God had poured out into him, and he's given those graces out to us. He gave gifts to men. So, he ascended on high. He led captivity captive, those forces that came against him to try and keep him from doing it. He took them captive, and he gave gifts to men. Didn't receive gifts. He gave gifts. Now, here at the end here, even after the victory of the cross and the victory of the resurrection, those are two victories. There's a victory at the cross. There's a victory at the resurrection. There was still, it seems anyway, another battle to get through. Everything Jesus did was purposed of God. Is that not right? Every word that Jesus spoke was purposed of God. Every healing that Jesus did was purposed of God. Every calling that he made to the disciples to the people who followed him, was purposed of God. Everything that Jesus did was purposed of God. Going to the cross, being resurrected, all these things. And God wanted to accomplish it, right? God desired to see these things accomplished. God wanted his death on the cross. He wanted to raise him from the dead. And he wanted that blood sprinkled on the altar. There's no doubt that's what the whole purpose of sending Jesus for was for those things. God desired it. Jesus accomplished it. He did the purpose. But notice this. Jesus still had to be obedient to. Still had to be obedient to. Not lose sight of. Speak faith in. And renew himself on. God's purpose. So he would defeat what came against him. I'll read it to you again. But Jesus still had to be obedient to, not lose sight of, speak faith in, and renew himself on God's purpose so he would defeat what came against him. It was not enough that God wanted it to happen. It was not enough that Jesus stayed focused on the purpose. He had to if you look at the life of Jesus, he had to learn obedience. He, he was obedient to the purpose of God. He, was, he, he did not lose sight of the purpose of God. The enemy came and tried to tempt him and get him to lose sight of that purpose. He didn't lose sight of the purpose of God. He spoke faith in. How many times did he say, the Son of Man will be tormented, beaten, 
and killed. And on the third day, rise again. He kept speaking faith in what God was going to accomplish to, to him. He kept speaking it, kept saying it. And he renewed himself on. We saw in the garden, he was renewing himself on there. I'm sure that's not the only time. He renewed himself on the purpose. If Jesus Christ, down here on this earth, had to be obedient to, not lose sight of, speak faith in, and renew himself on the purpose of God, how much more should we? Should we not be doing the same thing? God has a purpose. God has something for us to do. I've got to make sure I stay obedient to what God has called me to do, what God has told me to do. I've got to make sure that I stay focused on, not lose sight of what He has called me to do, that I speak faith in, that I keep going around speaking faith in. A lot of times the enemy wants to get you to speak anything but faith. Well, I don't think God has any kind of purpose for me. I don't think God can do anything with me. I, don't th I think God forgot about me. We're not speaking faith in those things. But Jesus constantly spoke faith in those things that God had called him to do. And he renewed himself on it. He sometimes withdraw and just pray and renew himself on what God told him to do, what God sent him to do, and renew that purpose. We, we know the prayer in the garden. Not my will, but your will be done. He renewed himself on that. I'm here to do your will. I'm here to do what you want. He did this daily. I speak the words that my Father gives me to speak. I do the things that I see my Father do. He kept renewing Himself constantly on these things. If He did it, we need to do it. Now, if the devil came after Jesus despite His victories over Him, if the devil came after Jesus after He lived life sinless and was victorious over the temptations, he was victorious in, this, in his path to the cross. He was silent as a lamb. He was victorious in the resurrection of the dead. After, after all those victories, the devil still came after him on his way to heaven. How much more is he not tired of trying to come after you? Sometimes we think after we get a couple of victories that, well, we just were there. And we got kind of surprised when the devil comes against us again. Why is he coming against me again? I thought I already beat this. I thought I already defeated this. But if you look at this, victory in life, victory on, his, on the path to the cross, victory at the cross, victory in the resurrection. And then he's down there at the tomb. Why is he down there at the tomb? Maybe he's getting himself, all right, here we got one more battle. <laughs> One more battle to do. And uh, let's, let's get going. I know, what, I know what's up there. I know what's awaiting me. But we're going to win. And he went on up there and he did it again. We are to follow his example if he won his victories. And I surely won his victories. Stay, stay looking at this the way Jesus did. Stay obedient to what God called you to do. Don't, don't quit. Don't quit it. Don't lose sight of what God called you to do. What God said, this is what I need you to do. Keep speaking faith in it. The enemy is going to get you to try and speak doubt in it. Well, I don't know that God called me to do anything. I don't know that I'm doing any good down here. I think I'm pretty useless down here. Uh, we speak all these things. We're not speaking faith in those things. Jesus doesn't speak doubt and unbelief into what God has called him to do. He stayed with it. 
and then renew yourself on it. I think if this is true that he was facing the battle, a battle that he won and took captivity captive, when he's talking to Mary and he says, I have not yet ascended to my father, but I'm going to go do that now. He fully expected to win. Fully expected to win. Don't expect to lose. Don't expect that the battle is going to be too great for you. Don't expect that, hey, you're, you're in this on your own. Does Jesus have angels to come in and, and fight this battle with him? I don't know. We're not told a whole lot. All we're told, the only one we know was in the battle was Jesus. He took the prisoners captive. He made a display of them openly, triumphing over them in it. The only one I know who has the victory over them is Jesus. If he needed help of the angels, if it was something that he just needed to do, I know in the Old Testament, the ministry of the high priest was done by the high priest. That was it. No one else could take that blood into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could do it. My assumption is that probably he had to do this one on his own. But I don't know. I can't say that for sure. But use him as your example. He did not lose sight. He stayed obedient too. He spoke faith in and he renewed himself on God's purpose. Don't lose sight. Don't become defeated. The enemy will try just as hard to defeat you as it did Jesus Christ. But he came out on top. And he's now working in you. And he can bring about that same victory. Well, Father, we thank you for the victory that Jesus did. That he stayed with it right to the end to get that blood to the altar. So that there would be peace between us and God. He operated as the high priest. That great high priest ministry of taking the blood of the sacrificial lamb and bringing it into the Holy of Holies. Just because the lamb was sacrificed didn't mean it was done. Because it wasn't done until that blood came into the Holy of Holies and was sprinkled on the altar. And Jesus stayed with it and took that blood into the Holy of Holies. And whatever got in his way, whatever tried to stop him from accomplishing it, he battled, he won, and he took them captive and paraded those that he defeated before heaven. We thank you for the great victory and the great example we have in our high priest. And may his example be one that we follow. In Jesus' name, amen.